Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine, analyse the growing closeness of Russia and North Korea, and we have the second part of a special interview with the FT's Ukraine correspondent, Christopher Miller. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 1st of August one year and 158 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Asia Correspondent Nicola Smith, Foreign Correspondent James Kilner, and Ukraine Correspondent for the FT and author of a new book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, Christopher Miller. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Uh, hi, Nicola. Great to, uh, great to hear from you again. So uh, there have been more drone attacks in, uh, in Moscow, the, the fifth in seven days and the second night running that the, I think this is the correct pronunciation, IQ Kvartal Tower, Kvartal Tower, basically a swanky office building housing seven Russian government ministries has been hit. So the Russia's Ministry of Economic Development, which is located on the 21st floor floor of the tower, bore the brunt of uh, last night's attack, but the Ministry of Digital Development, Communications and Mass Media is also reported to be in the same building and another another five um, government entities elsewhere. Uh, government advisor, uh, this is a Russian government advisor, said the Ministry of Economic Development would continue working remotely after the drone strike in possibly one of the greatest excuses for claiming another working from home day, I think. I might try that. The blast resulted in the temporary closure of Moscow's uh, Vinokovo airport, a diversion of many arriving flights. Now, Mikhailo Polyak, who's an advisor to President Zelensky, said, quote, Moscow is rapidly getting used to a full-fledged war, which in turn will soon finally move to the territory of the authors of the war to collect all their debts. Everything that will happen in Russia is an objective historical process, more unidentified drones, more collapse, more civil conflicts, more war. Now, his comments echo uh, President Zelensky's uh, comments on Sunday after their their drones hit Moscow, when he said that the war was returning to the territory of Russia. So Russians have responded. Obviously, Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobyanin has said several drones were shot down by air defence systems while trying to fly to Moscow. One flew into the same tower in the city as last time. I mean, it sounds quite casual. No, it's the same tower as last time, fellas, flew into the same tower. No information on casualties following this latest incident, but there have been injuries, no deaths reported, but have been injuries in some of the other the other strikes in the last few days. Now, as I said, this 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 drone hit the building in the glitzy financial district. It's called Moscow City. It's just on the southwest edge of the capital. Russian defense ministry said that they crashed after being electronically intercepted. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, there were reports yesterday that that two of the three got through. One may have been intercepted with EW electronic warfare but you know it's still it still lands somewhere two more drones shot down by air defense across the region according to Russian MOD now the Kremlin accused 
Ukraine launching a terrorist attack. There was terrorist attack against Russia, which I think is an act of such cognitive dissonance, given what they've been doing in Ukraine, that it makes your head spin. But they later said that they were going to be tightening security to prevent another attack. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told reporters today the threat does exist and it is clear measures are being taken. Uh, He then went on to say that it would be up to the military to make expert comments. I don't think you need to be an expert, really, to ask what air defence doing. But let's stick with drones for the moment. This time, let's move down to the Black Sea. So separately, Russia has claimed it repelled a Ukrainian naval drone attack on two vessels from its Black Sea fleet, the Sergei Kotov and the Vasily Kaikov, the both little corvettes. Later, now, so... That was that was from the MOD. They they obviously clearly later on got the memo from the Kremlin, I guess the Ministry of Digital Development, whatever it was, mass media, were also working from home today because it took a little while to get on message. But the Russian MOD later changed their outrage and said you said Ukraine had attempted a terrorist attack on civilian vessels in the Black Sea. So first of all said it was they actually named their ships part of the Black Sea fleet and then later on said it's civilian civilian vessels. So Mikhail Podolyak again, the advisor, as I said before, to President Zelensky, he said these new claims that it was terrorist and civilian and what have you. He said they do not contain even a shred of truth. He said undoubtedly such statements by Russian officials are fictitious. Ukraine has not attacked, is not attacking and will not attack civilian vessels nor any other civilian objects. So, I mean, it's quite it's been quite quite busy i think this is we can talk about it later about what I, what i think is going on here with this um with this style of attack but i mean we were obviously reported every day but there is a steady uptick in the uh, in these in these drone strikes inside moscow which is i mean it's a few hundred kilometers from the border with ukraine we we think they've got their own indigenous produced drones no one is yet i'm half expecting russian mod to make the claim oh it's western western kit or it's, it might have undoubtedly will have western components in it i think the shahid 136 drones that russia gets from iran has been shown to have some western components in it uh, in them so i'm waiting for for the Russian MOD to claim some sort of, oh, this is Western provocation and escalation, but they haven't done so yet. Wait out on that. But we can talk about what, what it means a bit later. Separately, on the counter-offensive, Ukrainian general staff said that they are continuing to assault positions on the south of the city of Bakhmut. They are trying to hold back Russian attempts to advance north of the city towards Kupiansk and Liman. We think that that axis, the Liman axis, so further up in the Donbass, is Russia's main effort at the moment in terms of offence, or the only effort really in terms of trying to go forward. The Ukrainian spokesman said heavy battles are going on. The enemy is putting up strong resistance, using reserves and suffering significant losses. But again, it's very difficult to verify any of that. Separately, Russia's chief of the general staff, Valery Gerasimov, he's been seen, he's been visiting troops in Zaporizhia. Russia's MOD said that Gerasimov had inspected a command centre and underscored the importance of preemptive strikes against Ukrainian forces. So it's kind of day one, day one lesson, preemptive strikes. Now, there were no, sorry, that. There was no comment about Gerasimov's position, the whole Wagner mutiny thing. Obviously, questions recently about whether he would keep his job. And it was, it's been a fortnight since he's been seen in public. So there have been questions about what, what, what he's up to, but he's now he's now popped up. Um, what else? Are we, where else are we? Sorry, I'm losing my, losing my notes here. And then uh, what else is there? Ukrainian Interior Minister Ihor Klimenko, he said that, Ukraine have thwarted an overnight attempt by a Russian saboteur group to cross the northern border. He said last night in the Chernihiv region, border guards stopped an attempt by an enemy saboteur reconnaissance group to cross the state border of Ukraine within the Semenivka community. So we're about 200 k's northeast of Kiev here. This is just 20 kilometers east of the border between Ukraine, Russia and Belarus. It's thought four individuals tried to cross the border but were repelled rather than um, arrested. Separately, two more, two more things, two more quick updates. Uh, rescue operations after the rocket attack on a civilian block of flats in Kriviri finished 7 p.m. local time yesterday. That was five, five in the afternoon here in London, midday on the U.S. East Coast. Serhei Lesak, who's the region's governor, said more bodies have been pulled from the rubble, including a 10-year-old girl who died with her mother. That takes the death toll from that strike to six, more than 80 injured. Mr. Lesak said on 
He's writing on, on Telegram. He said, this is terrorism. Six victims are known, among them a child, a girl. Her name was Daria. She was only 10 years old. Her mother died with her. Her name was Natalia, an ordinary family in an ordinary town whose life was destroyed by Russian killers. Now, I highlight that as we reported it yesterday, but also, you know, these might not make the daily headlines, but just as a snapshot of what would pass as a quote unquote normal day today in Ukraine, there were Russian strikes over overnight on a number of places. Strikes in Kharkiv with five um, Shahid drones, the, the, you know, the kamikaze drones, left a school burning. No casualties reported there. But another building, which is thought to be a sports conflict, complex, was also hit in, in Kharkiv. That did result in casualties. Shelling in Herzon, this is reported by the regional governor, Alexander Pradukin. He said shelling in Herzon had hit residential areas and a medical facility, killed and injured civilians, including a doctor, uh, and more civilian deaths in Avdivka, so this is in the Donetsk region, uh, caused by artillery strikes and tank fire into the into the town. So, yeah, so that, if anything, if, use the word guardedly, but a normal day, this this is just happening across the piece. So even though they might not make the daily headlines, if, we're, if we're, there's too much going on um, to focus on all the small details, then um, these, this, is, this is happening all the time. So we'll try and bring that to you uh, as and when we can, just to, just to reiterate what, what, what is happening um, every day. I'll take a pause there. Thanks very much, Dom. Can I go to Nicola Smith? Nicola, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Can we start with this visit of Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defence minister, who went to North Korea last week? Can you tell us why he visited, what happened, and, and also how was it reported in South Korea? Sure. Well, thanks very much for having me back on again. And it's it's been a very interesting development on the Korean peninsula. It's never dull here. But last week's trip by Shoigu to Pyongyang was particularly significant. It was the first time a Russian defence minister has been there since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And he visited for three days. And this coincided with the 70th anniversary of the armistice that ended the Korean War. And even though the two Koreas are still technically at war, there was no peace treaty. North Korea calls this day Victory Day. And it's a very triumphal militaristic celebration every year. And this year, Shoigu joined in on the VIP balcony with Kim Jong-un overseeing North Korea's latest uh, <clears throat> nuclear-capable missiles and all of its uh, latest technology. You had goose-stepping troops and, and drones swooping overhead, and it was a big spectacle. But the day before was especially significant because he was personally escorted around a weapons expo by Kim Jong-un. And we saw them being very jovial and, and walking past nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missiles and new drone technology, which strongly resembled US MQ-9 Reapers and Global Hawk UAV technology. Of course, this being North Korea, we don't actually know if it works. But these were these have never been seen before. And Shoigu reciprocated this red carpet welcome by pledging to boost military ties with North Korea. He praised North Korea's military as the most powerful in the world. Obviously, that's that's very hollow, but it, it went down very well in Pyongyang. And he hand-delivered a letter from President Putin, which, which told Kim Jong-un that in the face of modern threats and challenges, it, it is especially important to preserve and increase the glorious traditions of friendship, good neighborliness, and mutual assistance. So in South Korea, as, as with other regional neighbours, uh, especially Japan and also the US, the UK, this sight of Shoigu and, and Kim laughing next to nuclear long-range missiles was particularly grim, alarming. It, it wasn't very well received. And it also showed a very stark contrast with South Korea's own very somber commemorations of the armistice and in the south there was a lot of focus on honoring the millions who died 
and those who served in, in the 1950-53 Korean War, uh, including more than a thousand Brits who died. And there were several, several British veterans who were over here uh, showing uh, tremendous fortitude and uh, tremendous um, resilience by coming over to Korea uh, in the sweltering heat in their 90s. And uh, so this was a very stark reminder that of the difference between North and South Korea and, and really that the North Korean regime just does not care about its own people. Thank you very much for that overview, Nicola. Can I ask, I mean, I think I think we, we, we understand why why Russia is getting closer to North Korea. It needs munitions. It needs uh, equipment. What What's in it for North Korea? What What are they gaining from this? Well, there, there's two ways to look at this. And there's advantages for both North Korea and, and Russia in terms of, first of all, a transactional relationship. And secondly, a growing strategic partnership. So if we look, first of all, at the transactional relationship since last year, the, there have been US intelligence reports that have warned that Russia is trying to and has bought rockets and artillery shells from North Korea in exchange for food aid and other supplies like oil and medicines that North Korea desperately needs. It's been under a very harsh international sanctions regime for years in, with basically in an effort to curb its nuclear weapons and, and missiles program. And that combined with mismanagement of the economy under an authoritarian regime and also the pandemic where it essentially sealed off its borders and there was no trade even between North Korea and China or Russia, then the economy has, has completely tanked. And so that, first of all, is something that North Korea can gain from sending weapons to Russia it, it gets food aid for its people. There's been widespread reports of, of hunger and possible starvation in North Korea. So that, so that is de- desperately needed. And then from Russia's point of view, as the Secretary of State, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken pointed out, they're desperately looking for weapons wherever they can find them. Uh, we're starting to see more evidence of, of this on the ground. With There was a Financial Times report over the weekend that Ukrainian artillery units had been seen using North Korean rockets that they claimed had been seized by a friendly country and then diverted to them. Uh, you have experts who are suggesting that that North Korea would likely be able to provide Russia with 122 or 152 millimeter artillery shells and either tube artillery or multiple rocket launcher artillery compatible with Russian systems. And US intelligence is also pointing to shipments via Middle East and Africa. And while North Korea denies all of this, and it's unclear what Russia has given North Korea in terms of food supplies or, or other supplies, because the, the, it's very difficult to monitor the border between Russia and, and North Korea. One thing that Kim has definitely gained is status with his domestic audience at a time where there is great suffering among the North Korean population. And, and you have Shoigu coming and praising him, standing next to him in front of, of the whole of North Korea. And so that gives him more of a statesmanlike image that he wants to cultivate for propaganda purposes. And, and then if we look at the, the uh, bigger strategic play and the symbolism, then you have Russia, North Korea and China to a certain extent clearly see that it's in each other's interest to band together in this region, in, in East Asia, against a growing alliance between the United States, South Korea and Japan. And for Moscow, it's a chance to to give the US a poke in the eye, so to speak, over Washington's efforts to try and denuclearize the, the Korean Peninsula and to try and, and stop Kim Jong-un's weapons program. North Korea is banned from developing weapons using ballistic missile technology by UN Security Council resolutions. And uh, these were once backed by Russia. 
which, which, as we know, is is a member of the Security Council, and it, it appears that Moscow has now dropped any kind of pretense to be a, a constructive or responsible player on the Korean Peninsula, and it's going to make a diplomatic solution to the nuclear weapons problem much harder. So from a North Korean point of view, the grow- these growing ties with China and Russia signal an effort to counter US attempts to intensify its cooperation with neighbouring South Korea and Japan on security matters. There's been a lot of frustration, alarm in Pyongyang over joint military drills between the United States and South Korea. Uh, recently, a US nuclear armed submarine arrived in in the South for the first time since the 1980s. There is a trilateral security summit coming up between the US, South Korea and Japan this month. And so what we're seeing now is the emergence in in East Asia of more entrenched strategic blocs. You have North Korea, China and Russia on the one hand who have got each other's backs versus the United States, Japan and South Korea. Well, let's move and talk about China and Taiwan then. Uh, You and Sophia Yan, our China correspondent, have written a really interesting article. I'd recommend everybody listening to to go and read it. Uh, You spoke to Joseph Wu, the Taiwanese foreign minister, um, who had some very interesting thoughts on this idea that China uh, might be a sort of a a peace broker in in the war in Ukraine. Um, What did he tell you? He basically said that China cannot be trusted to broker peace between Russia and Ukraine because on the one hand, it's talking about peace there. On the other, it's it's threatening to invade Taiwan. And you might think that that would be something that the Taiwanese foreign minister would say, but it, it does make a lot of sense that Taiwan, which is a democracy of some 23 million, is facing daily intimidation from China. Beijing has made it very clear that it will take Taiwan. It does want to unify with Taiwan. And if it has to use force to do that, it will do so. So he he highlighted this double standard of Beijing on the one hand, pushing for peace in Ukraine and Russia, but still simultaneously threatening Taiwan, which, you know, the majority of this, this, the Taiwanese population do not want to join China. And they're alarmed by efforts to, to try and force them to do so. Well, thank you very, very much, Nicola, for joining us. I thought that was really fascinating. James Kilner, can I go to you? There's a couple of stories you've been writing up over the past few days. First, can we start with this rather alarming story from Poland about the Wagner Group? What, what have you been reading? Hi, David. So, yeah, that, that, that story came out on Saturday for the Sunday newspaper. That was a, a comment that the Polish Prime Minister made at a, when, when he, he was touring a tank factory, a, a factory which makes sort of military equipment in, in southern Poland. And as he was there, he said that 100 Wagner mercenaries had now moved in very near the Polish border. There's a strip of land... Well, there's a strip of land six five miles across which separates Kaliningrad from uh, Belarus called the uh, Suwalki Gap. The Lithuania and, and Poland show a border along that. And that has been identified by various military analysts as a potential weakness in NATO's border with, with Russia and, 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 and Belarus. And uh, the Polish Prime Minister on Saturday said that 100 Wagner mercenaries have now moved into this area on the Belarus side. And he said that they would be trying to push a form of hybrid warfare. Now, he, he, he said that they would be trying to encourage uh, economic migrants from, from Africa and the Middle East to, to move into the EU across the Polish border. This was a tactic that Belarus tried in, to destabilise Poland in 2021, and he said that, they were good, that these Wagner mercenaries would try and do this again. He also said that they may dress up in disguises as economic migrants themselves and, and try and uh, cross the border into Poland and c- cause problems, etc. Wagner does have a backstory, a, a sort of a history of using migrants as, as weaponizing mi- migrants. Fortunately, they, they, the Italian media wrote about them quite extensively last summer, how they were uh, helping to launch boats full of economic migrants from um, the Libyan coastline towards Italy. So this is... Uh, they have formed basically this sort of hybrid warfare 
and uh, the uh, the Polish Prime Minister was flagging this up rather alarmingly on Saturday. Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, has come out there and said that this is nonsense. The um, this is excessively alarmist. The uh, the Wagner fighters were just moving towards a military base in in the in this area to to train Belarus soldiers. We know that Belarus has come up with some some sort of roadmap or plan to tap into the Wagner mercenary experience of fighting in in Ukraine to improve their own special forces and their and their own soldiers. They've been holding training camps um, further south on on the Polish border already, and. Um, this was sort of Lukashenko. Lukashenko is playing a rather bizarre role at the moment. He's trying to position himself or make himself seem like a, a sensible, reasonable international um, statesman who's talked out Prigozhin's rebellion at the end of, uh, talked down Prigozhin uh, from marching on Moscow at the end of June and has now agreed to host these, these bloodthirsty Wagner mercenaries. And he previously told Putin at a meeting in St. Petersburg in mid-July that he was the one holding the Wagner mercenaries back from marching on, on Warsaw. So there's lots of mind games going on here. We know the, the, the Poles uh, on Sunday are very nervous about these Wagner mercenaries turning up in their hundreds in Belarus. Um, it's been confirmed by the British Ministry of Defence, which said there's several hundred Wagner mercenaries there now. They've been arriving in columns, convoys from Russia in the last fortnight, really. Um Listeners probably don't need much to recap, but there was a peace deal hashed out which ended their brief mutiny on June the 24th, under which they would move into exile into Belarus. What happens with them now is the big question. The MOD, British MOD, did say, importantly, that the Wagner mercenaries appeared not to have their heavy tanks, etc., with them. They appear to have handed those back over to the Russian military. So there's that to bear in mind as well. Thanks very much for that, James. Can we move back into Russia then? There's a very interesting story. And I mean, you know, you you sort of tell us how, how much we should read into this, I think, about some of the candidates for local ele- elections in Russia who are not talking about the war in Ukraine. Um, what's happening and what do you make of it? So that was, that was a pickup really on some excellent bit of reporting done earlier last week by a, a Russian opposition outlet based in, in Europe. And they've been talking to some people and they were really confirming stuff, sort of a sort of a shift that so it's it's my role, it's my job at the Telegraph to 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 read up on Russia and monitor Russia and Port in Russia extensively. And uh, in since this failed Prigozhin rebellion, since the war in Ukraine has been dragging on, since the drone attacks have 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 started in Moscow, and the uh, increasing incursions in Belgorod region, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, attacks on Crimea Bridge, ammo dumps, etc., blowing up in Crimea. I think the the, the war is becoming increasingly unpopular in Russia, and uh, despite what the sort of state-sponsored opinion polls say, and this report from this opposition media group in in. In, in in Europe and and they've been talking to various people in in um, in Russia confirm this. So they were looking specifically at regional elections in Russia, which have been held on September the tenth, and they basically said that United Russia, which is Putin's political party, had had to row back on promoting veterans and promoting the war in their campaign because it had become so unpopular. And they quoted some people saying if. A United Russia candidate turned up in the provinces and started banging on about the war, they would get shouted down and it would be a PR disaster. So they said that all the pro-war leaflets that had previously been published um, at the beginning of the year, I, I, we wrote through on, on this in about February or March, have now been shredded. The, the, the veterans have been told not to wear their sort of military medals and, and their military jackets, etc., at campaign hustings speeches, etc., and and also to tone down talk of the war. And this is really, really surprising and important. I mean, this is a... I remember reporting on this when United Russia said it early in the year that they were going to make a big thing of it. And that made sense. And so to have such a fundamental rollback on, on, on a cornerstone policy is a really 
important signifier that they're, that they are losing the uh, Russian population in regards to the popularity of the war. Thank you very much for those stories, James. And before we go to our final thoughts, I realise this is a combination of journalists on the podcast that we I don't think I don't think we've ever actually had before. So I just wanted to ask Nicola, Dom, and James whether you had any questions for each other. Of course, James is looking at Russia, Nicola out in Asia, Dom. Of course, you're in, you're in London. Do you have any questions? Just to, you know, just to, just to show that, um, of course, you know. We, we are to some extent limited by the areas we report on, and we've tried to, in this podcast anyway, bring together all of our expertise. But Nicola, Dom and James, do you have anything for each other? Yeah, if I may, specifically for, for Nicola. Hi, Nicola. The relationship, what's your view on the relationship at the moment between Japan and South Korea? It has been testy in the past, to say the least, but they, they seem to be getting much closer now, probably with US guidance and through the focus of Ukraine slash Taiwan, but just wonder if you could offer a comment on on where the where that relationship seems to be at the moment in terms of defence and security, and um, and what hurdles or what what barriers really still exist. Thanks. That's that's a good question, and there have been some very significant developments this year between South Korea and Japan. Previously, they had a very frosty relationship over a disagreement about a compensation deal that goes all the way back to World War II and and the actions of, of Japanese companies at that time and forced labour accusations and, and compensation about that. But earlier this year, South Korea, out of the blue, just uh, announced a compromise that actually helped the two nations to come together and and to put a lot of these historical differences to bed. Now, it's still very politically sensitive in both South Korea and Japan. The governments both have to keep their domestic audiences happy. They have to alleviate any concerns of the public, while at the same time trying to pursue a much more strategic partnership that is more aligned with the geopolitical realities that they're facing, and also try and forge a closer trilateral relationship with the US. But on the foreign policy side and the defence side, that seems to be going very well, regardless of the difficulties that, that both Kishida and President Yoon in South Korea face in terms of opposition parties and uh, public discontent. They seem to be moving quite rapidly forward in terms of having strategic talks with the United States and with each other and also in trying to work out some kind of more closely aligned defence cooperation, whether that be joint drills or intelligence sharing. And they're they're very much looking at their own neighbourhood. Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida of Japan, has made very publicly made the link between the security situation in East Asia and what is happening in Ukraine and and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how the, the two are very much interlinked. And, and that's something that South Korea also seems to be taking on board. And so we have seen some quite significant steps, really, in terms of trying to bury the differences of the past and forge uh, a stronger alliance with with the United States and, and each other. The, there's multiple threats in this region. It's, it's not only North Korea and its nuclear program, but there's growing alarm in East Asia over China's more assertive foreign policy and what its intentions may be towards t- not only Taiwan, but also the South China Sea. Japan also has strategic uh, territorial disputes with China. So there are there are multiple challenges in this region, and they certainly seem to be seeing it as as much more to their mutual interest to be talking more and cooperating more. But I I would like to you know ask a question to you as well, Dom, just about how that's being viewed in London, whether people are seeing the link between what is happening in. Europe and Ukraine and the security of the Indo-Pacific and how how much of uh, an actual priority is that? It it certainly seems to be on paper, but how do you think that is 
playing out in in London and, and Western Europe? Well, I mean, it is um, a priority, but they always say there's loads of priorities, which means you've got none. I mean, the, the British, the, the, the refreshed integrated review and the associated defense command paper the last couple of weeks the sort of blueprint for the next uh, next turn of the wheel the next 20 odd years of foreign and defense and security policy here i mean very very much talking about the euro atlantic area being the immediate threat and and china being the the longer term issue they're talking about the storm and the weather the euro atlantic and russia is the current storm but russia setting the, the the weather if you like for the next 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 epoch now how how that translates is a, is another thing entirely we've got two very small navy vessels very very new so very capable but but two permanently assigned to the indo-pacific area and hey the indo-pacific area is is a bit bigger than than two and two little uh, what are they, river patrol class boats can get around, ships, sorry. So, I mean, they, they talk it. James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, visits regularly. So in terms of the diplomatic heft and the soft power, they're trying to, trying to use that, I think, because there's not an awful lot of hard power that can be spared. The next uh, big sort of carrier strike group visit to the Indo-Pacific region up to Japan and back, I think it's scheduled for 2025. So they're trying to do what they they can. Britain is interested in the Quad, the US, Japan, India, Australia arrangement. It's not a defence alliance at all, but I think we're trying to trying to get involved in that. Just take an observer status on ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. So, I mean, to, trying to get more involved and do, do what we can to energise got to sound like a politician now but energize energize our network of friends and and allies but quite if you put that against the the hard power rise of china especially the 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 rise of the navy what's the latest stat i think it was the um, the chief of the defense staff when he was head of the navy a couple of years ago he said that that china is building the equivalent of the the royal navy every four years which is quite an alarming stat now of course it's untested in combat etc etc but you know having that amount of tonnage of metal in the water is is a in and of itself a a significant a significant thing so yeah i mean the the nato as well is trying is becoming more interested in the indo-pacific a- area so countries like japan and australia have observer status i'm not quite sure the exact terminology but effectively observer status at, at nato so there's lots of these these alliances nice sort of lots of flags on the um on the poster type thing but what it what it actually comes down to very little hard power has been delivered AUKUS, the AUKUS pact which is not just submarines it's science and technology and, and other bits and pieces between the uk australia and and uh, the us that seems to be the kind of most obvious pivotal thing you can point to right now to suggest a deepening of a very obvious deepening of defense ties so yes they're, they're aware of it i mean the think tanks and the politicians will will, will talk about the, the war in ukraine as a as a um through the lens or taiwan through the lens of ukraine but quite how that plays out against massive inflation and cost of living crisis etc etc potential turmoil in u.s politics to come it's very difficult to to see a a coherent response nato actually just to find just final point nato's got its got its um got its act together not not that i've never really had an act but you know that nato what we were doing in 1967 by the way because nato 1967 that's the last time nato actually wrote its plan down it's not had a plan between 1967 and today but actually it's now finally sort of you know dusted it all off so nato's upping its game in terms of the actual planning they've got a very coherent threat it does talk about the threat from the from the rising china as well but still very focused on euro atlantic the the original purpose so yes these conversations are happening and and there are some things going on in the in the foreign policy and defense and security landscape but it's there's there's not been a a galvanizing event really to 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 focus the minds such as such as war in ukraine if something were to happen in the taiwan strait that might be a a very different um, kettle of fish or a missile that that north korea fired that didn't go across japan and and landed on the on the you know on land then that that might do something but at the moment there's no real totemic issue to to um to sort of corral the, the the troops around well, thank you, Dom and Nicola. I think we've got to the end of our time today. So could I just get very, very quickly all of your final thoughts? I don't know who would like to go first. Uh, James. Thanks, David. So really quickly, one other story I looked at at the weekend, uh, as well as the uh, drone attack on Moscow City on Sunday morning, was this speech that Putin gave at the naval parade, his annual naval parade. 
up in St. Petersburg, which which gives an opportunity to talk about one of his idols, Peter the Great, and to give what has previously been a sort of fairly bombastic speech. This year was surprisingly low-key speech by Putin. He he sort of he 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 did it was rather boilerplate as as one analyst put it, and he he sort of spoke about the history and how proud he was about na- na- uh, his navy. But there was no sort of uh, there was no mention of the war. There was no sort of aggression or particular threat that you you'd expected. Last year, for example, he he spoke about enforcing Russia's right to project naval power around the world and and equipping frigates with a new hypersonic Zircon missile. And this year, it was a, a rather muted, stumbling uh, affair. He looked very tired. He tripped over some words slightly. It was just an aside that I picked up on on Sunday and I wanted to share with listeners. Thank you very much, James. Dom Nichols, would you like to go next? Yeah, very quickly, back to these drone attacks in Moscow. I think the thing to, to look at there is how... Ukraine continues to tread that very fine line between sowing discord in Russia with people thinking, oh, my God, you know, is this guy able to provide security if these things are getting through? So, so doing that without going so far as to tip Russian society into kind of resolute and dogged support for the Kremlin. If you think about the blitz spirit here in the UK in the Second World War or how citizens of Belgrade came out in 99 against NATO bombing and, and stood on the bridges, so acting as their own human shields, if, if you like. So push too far and, and, and the citizens will self, self-organise and, and, and Ukraine have to be very careful that they don't do that and they don't, they don't do Putin's work for him. You won't need all his trolls, his troll farms of disinformation to galvanise society if they self-organise against this, uh, what they might perceive as a common foe. They've got to stay just the right side of the line, sowing discord and disunity and, and, and chipping away, chipping away at that veneer of all omnipotent security that Putin wants to project without going too far. Thank you, James and Dom. And to finish today, Nicholas Smith. Thanks. I think I'd like to just stress again that in East Asia, we're seeing a growing and very acute awareness of the link between the Ukraine conflict and Indo-Pacific security. And and we're now seeing major strategic shifts and moves to face that reality. And this is definitely something that, that will be interesting to watch in the coming months. Now we go to the second part of my interview with Christopher Miller, the FT's Ukraine correspondent. The last question was about Ukraine on the defensive. I wanted to push the question forward and ask about Ukraine's counteroffensive that's been taking place for many, many weeks now. Here's the second part of our conversation. Chris, can we talk a little bit about the offence? For the past two months, we've obviously also, we've all been reporting on the Ukrainian counteroffensive. How do you try and sift what you think is actually happening from the fog of war? And what, what do you think is happening? What's, what's your take on the last two months? Yeah, it's a good question because part of the the challenge for us is as journalists is, is figuring out what is happening on a on a daily basis, and there are obviously the reports from Ukraine's leadership, military leadership, and political leadership that certainly we we believe much more than the statements of of those coming out of Moscow. And and for great reason, right? Um, Russia's leadership has proven um, that it that it lies time and time again. Whereas, you know, the Ukrainians um, obviously are putting out, you know, messages that they want the West and and, and journalists to to hear, but they are largely truthful and accurate. Still, we try to verify what we can, and that can be easier to do when I'm on the ground in, in the south of the country, near the front lines in Zaporizhia Oblast, for instance, as I was just a little over a week ago, or around Bakhmut, where, where I had been around the same time. I could see what was happening. I could speak to the soldiers and those, uh, you know, what, what I was witnessing and the, the statements from the soldiers who I was interviewing were you know similar to what the leadership was saying now some of the differences would be maybe the type or the the amount of success they were having right it's a little bit harder for soldiers on the ground to know beyond their their area what is what is happening so if they're having success it doesn't necessarily mean that what's happening on the south 200 kilometers away is is seeing the same kinds of results and so 
you know, I always try to spend as much time on the ground speaking to soldiers, speaking to commanders, these more middle ranking officers who I think have a more granular view and, and, and bits of information than the political leadership in Kiev. Although, to his credit, President Zelensky actually does quite a lot of travel to the front line. And we just saw him visit frontline positions within the last 24 hours, actually, out in Bakhmut and some other locations where he met with some special forces. So I do think he has a fairly good grasp on the day-to-day on-the-ground events. But yeah, it's a constant struggle to discern what is happening because obviously it's, it's... Access is a lot more limited these days for journalists at the front line than it was in 2014 and, and in some of the years after that. Obviously, the Ukrainians want to keep you know, as, as much control of the messaging uh, and reporting as they can for security reasons. You know, I, I, I think that certainly the strongest reporting that I've seen comes not from a lot of us um, when we're in Kiev but when we're able to move around on the front in the south or the east of the country. Now, if we talk more specifically about what's happening right now, you know, I think with this counteroffensive, it started much later than anticipated. The Ukrainians were really trying to come up with a, a, as much of a detailed battle plan as they could while waiting for as much Western weaponry to arrive as they could. And it's at at some point, they decided, okay, we have to move now. And I think it was because a lot of Western supporters, the United States in particular, was saying to, to, to Kiev, you need to get moving now. They needed to see results or returns on their investment. But also, they were saying, every day you take to prepare, the Russians are also taking to prepare their defenses. So when this counteroffensive began, there was this massive mechanized push with Western tanks and armor and a lot of, well, up to, up to 20% of the Western weaponry that had been given to Ukraine for this counteroffensive, according to Ukrainian and, and Western officials, was destroyed within just a couple of weeks. And when I was in Zaporizhia Oblast, down near the front line, talking with some, some soldiers just a week and a half ago, they were saying, our, our first attempt to break through the line failed. We managed to take s- some areas east and west of where we would like to to drive straight through, and that area can help us stage new attacks in the near future. But you know that little bit of, of territory isn't going to be enough to, to make any kind of difference or to force Russia to the negotiating table. They were really having a difficult time breaking through these extremely dense Russian defenses that include anti-tank trenches, miles-deep minefields, they were also, the Russians were using attack helicopters to a devastating uh, extent there. And we saw the Ukrainians then pull this armor back and, and switch back to a more Soviet-style approach of, of essentially focusing their efforts on heavy artillery and pounding Russian positions to, to, to then advance very slowly through these minefields with mine-clearing equipment and, and smaller teams. And so instead of trying to push through quickly and, and, and make this breakthrough in the style that we saw last year around Kharkiv or during a, a little later around Kherson, it was more of this tree line by tree line, 10 meters ahead, 30 meters ahead over the course of several days before they made these advances. And the point was, you know, not to, they knew that this this tactic wasn't going to get them to break through the front line, but it could get them closer so that there's less of a distance for their armor to be exposed to these Russian attack helicopters, to artillery, to anti-tank weaponry that has, has really come into play down there. So in the last couple of days, there's been, again, this big mechanized push. It does seem as though there's now this sort of second wave uh, attempt to penetrate these more dense front lines of, of Russia in the south. Of course, the point being, or the goal rather, there is to crack through, drive as far, far south uh, toward the city of Melitopol as possible, and then to branch off both uh, east and west in order to sort of outflank the Russians and get them to to run in each of those directions, one being closer to occupied Crimea, one being closer to the Russian, the Western Russian border, and to hopefully cut off the land bridge that has allowed Russia to 
feed new uh, supplies and, and weaponry and equipment to its forces in the southern uh, part of the country. I know it's almost an, an impossible question, but how do you see, how might you see the next sort of few weeks, months, especially going into autumn and the rain, you know, the rain's coming and everything's turning to mud. How, how do you see the next few months unfolding potentially? You know, the Ukrainians are good on their land. I mean, they know this, this place better than the Russian occupiers do. And they are motivated. For them, this is an existential fight. If they stop, Russia wins. And so they're going to keep going regardless. But the window of time that they have for ideal conditions to carry out these operations is closing. Because as you mentioned, autumn is coming up, the rain's going to start, and then we're going to get into these extremely frigid months where everything will uh, freeze over and the ground will be really hard, which can be good for, for heavy vehicles, but it can also be really bad if you need to dig in. They will also, no doubt, expend a lot of artillery and see a lot of casualties the, the longer this plays out. I'm... I remain hopeful that they can break through and make gains because I've seen firsthand what the Ukrainian army is capable of and what even men and, and women with very little military experience but an extreme desire to achieve these goals can do. That said, there is I'm, I'm concerned, and obviously Ukraine's Western supporters and, and it, its leadership and the soldiers on the front line are, are worried that Russia's had a lot of time to dig in and, and really build up their, their defenses. And, and they've, they've, turned, they, they've turned this occupied territory that they're, that they're on into fortresses. And it's going to be really difficult to break through. And we could see this grinding, attritional fight carry on for months and months and months. And, and then come the end of the year, all sorts of other things are going to play, come into play. You know, not only the weather, but, but politics. And as me, I'm an American, as my country starts talking more and more about next year's election, there, there is a concern that Ukraine could become this political football in, in those conversations. And as we get closer to debates and, and the campaigns heat up as well. So it's like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase one of the soldiers who I met. He's a special forces guy on the South. And he was recovering from a concussion at a, at a stabilization point, just a couple of miles back from the front line. He said, we are, we're capable of anything. We need a lot more to do everything. I remain hopeful, but hope isn't a strategy. And we need to make sure that our allies, if they want us, if they want us to win, they need to give us all of the means, everything that they can to, to, to help us win. And the second part of that was him saying, we need F-16s and jets, because what they're doing on the ground down there is a type of operation that is extremely complex and difficult, and they're expected to do it without air cover, which is not something that any NATO country would be expected to do. Yeah, that just also highlights the, the, the difficulty. Could I ask you a slightly cheeky question? You mentioned earlier that you've been, you, you've been traveling a lot with, with Roland, and Roland, as listeners will know, regular contributor to this podcast. What was that like? <laughs> it was great. I mean, Roland is uh, a, a great travel companion. He's got a good sense of humor. And he, I think he's someone who, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Back in, back in 2014, a few days after the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 was shot out of the sky by a Russian Buk missile, Roland and I happened to be at a hotel in the city of Donetsk, which was under the occupation of, of Russia's separatist proxy forces and, and Russian forces. And we had woken up one morning and he said, I don't see any, I don't see any big news. What are your editors saying? And I said, I'm not really being asked to do anything. And he said, well, I've got this, I, I saw this blog. It looks interesting. This guy says he's sort of narrowed down this window or, or this area where the Buk missile that shot down the plane could be located. Do you want to, you want to hit the road and go see if we can find it? And I said, yeah, sure. That sounds like a great plan. And, and that really was the plan. We didn't have any other any details to go on. But we, we sped through a bunch of checkpoints, Russian checkpoints, each man with some very jittery armed soldiers who were wondering where an American and a British journalist were going and what they were looking for. And a group stumbled upon us as we were looking through this field. And we, 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 were, we discussed among us what we should do when they, find, when they approach us. We could see their car coming 
from the direction of the Russian border. And Roland says, well, we've, we've, we've just got to make up a story. And so we had come up with this story about being lost while trying to find the crash site of the plane. When in reality, what we were doing was looking for the launch site of the missile. And so he was he was quick to come up with with with, with an answer to um, a, a tricky scenario, and you know he no he's just a he's just a good colleague and and a few minutes after that you know we ended up finding a farmer who pointed us in the direction of a scorch mark in a field and it turned out that we had discovered the launch site of the Buk missile that that shot down the plane and so that evidence that we that we collected, I, I shot a video of Roland doing a stand-up uh, for the Telegraph in the field, and I took several photographs and published them myself. And, and that ended up being evidence that was used by the Dutch to convict four men in the downing of MH17 and confirmed that this missile had been fired on Russian-controlled territory, um, which, was a, which was a big thing. And I remember we were, we were a bit shocked that we had we had found this. We weren't quite certain that that same day that we had found it, but he had a good he had he had good instincts. He he thought there would be a, a chance that we could find this. Turns out he was right, and we did. So yeah, you know he's he's a solid a solid reporter and a good guy, and he's always been a very uh, a very good colleague. Don't worry, I'll ask him the same question of you when he comes back from holiday. So we'll try and get around it. (laughs) Um, Could you tell us about? um, Could you tell us about your book? Um, What's it called, and why did you write it? What are you trying to do in it? Yeah, the book is called "The War Came to Us: Life, Life, and Death in Ukraine," and it's essentially my 13-year journey of um, living, working, reporting in Ukraine in parallel with the several major events that have changed and ultimately shaped Ukraine into the country that we see it today. And it's broken up into four sections. The first is essentially covering what was peacetime between 2010 and 2013, just before the beginning of the revolution. It then goes into the revolution in Crimea, the annexation, Russia's annexation, and then it looks at the war in 2014 before jumping ahead to 2012. And so there are, there are a lot of books that are out now that really cover the last year and a half and talk a lot about the events on the ground and the invasion with a lot of the geopolitical context wrapped into it. But what I wanted to do is, because I had this really fortunate and unique experience to get to know the country pre-Russian invasion, pre-2014, and, and watch it change from have a, a country that, that did fairly elect a Moscow-friendly president, to then overthrowing that president, sparking this revolution, and then enduring not one but two Russian military invasions, I, I thought it was important to understand for readers like the context, because as you pointed out earlier, right, we, we're talking a lot about the war right now, and and we do in our in just in conversation, we we there, there's there can often be this lapse. We just talk about the war as if it began in February of 2022, but it actually began many years ago, nine years ago now, and so. The title, the title is, I mean, the us in the title, the war came to us is me being here, but Ukrainians and the people who I got to know, who I became friends with, who I saw grow up, get married, have children, go off to defend their country. And it's, you know, I I think in the tradition of the foreign correspondent who goes off to cover a war and does write in a first person way about those events it's 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 a bit like that right if you think of how orwell covered homage to catalonia from a first person perspective there is some of that and there is some elements of memoir but ultimately it's a collection of stories about this place and these people who have gotten to know so well and greatly admire and have done some of the most extraordinary things that anyone on the planet has done in the past decade and so you know i i really hope people will 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 read this book and and take away all of the context and that 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 I think is is necessary to better understand what Ukrainians are fighting for in in right now against Russia's ongoing invasion, um, and then just to to also enjoy it, right? I mean, I know it's a book about war, and there are you know a lot of tragedies that are written about in it, but Ukrainians are incredible people. They've done extraordinary things faced with unimaginable military aggression and 
yeah, I just wanted to tell a very powerful story. And I felt like I was lucky enough to be in a position to, to write about it. Did you find any of it sort of emotionally difficult to write? Yeah, there were, there were a few, a few people who appear in the book who during the writing of it were killed on the front lines. I found it a little bit difficult writing about Bakhmut when I first moved there, knowing that I had just finished a week-long trip and seen how badly much of it had been destroyed. And now I'm trying to conjure up these memories or I'm reading old journals to write about what it was like. And, and so, you know, I, th I think I managed to get through writing about it in, in those early chapters in that, in that way of looking back and, and, and writing about these more pleasurable experiences because I had journals to draw from and letters to and from or between myself and family and friends. But it would have been a lot more difficult if I, if I hadn't had the foresight to log all of my experiences many years ago because the city that I was seeing now was in such bad shape. I'm not sure that I would have been able to recognize this place as being, for example, this, this discotheque in the park as being this place where I had so much fun with, 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 with friends before. And if I didn't have these, these, these memories written down to look, look back on. And, and looking also at the lives of, of a lot of my friends and how they changed, yeah, it was, it was emotional at times and, and, and difficult for them. And I also wanted to be careful about what I wrote about them, just because some of them could be potential. Some of them had joined the military, and I, I didn't want to put them at, at, at risk um, if, if they felt as though their names and information being out there publicly would, would in any way put their, their family in jeopardy. So, you know, I, I, I went back and I contacted all of my friends and, and contacts and people who were in the book just to make sure that they didn't mind being written about. And actually what I found was that it was cathartic to some of them to speak about the old, the old days and uh, when we would walk around the park sipping a beer and listening to music on a holiday or something. And I found actually that it was a bit cathartic for myself too. It was one way of processing what was happening by looking back and recounting these memories that we had. Thank you so much, Chris, for all of your time. Can I ask just one more question? What would you want listeners? I mean, one of, one of the amazing things about you and your work is that you've been there for so long, and as you said, pre-2014 uh, as well. What would you want listeners from all around the world to, to, to take away about the state of Ukraine right now? I think... Ukraine and Ukrainians have always been underestimated and always counted out much too early. Right now, this counteroffensive is going on, and there's a lot of talk about whether or not it's already failed. And I think that's wrong. I think the Ukrainians have proven time and again that they're extremely motivated and experienced and, I mean, just... They, they've, they've outperformed every time somebody has placed some kind of expectation on them. I, th I think it would just be to continue supporting Ukraine. Don't count them out. And don't forget, you know, I mean, this is, this could very well end up being a war that, is, that drags out for many more years. Just like Russia's first invasion of 2014 was intense for a, a year before the frontline solidified the intensity dwindled and then many people forgot about it and ukraine in that amount of time didn't get as much support as many ukrainians believed they should have which led to russia invading in 2022 and one of their biggest fears now is being forgotten and this story falling off the front pages so i guess the the message to journalists like myself and and your colleagues are you know, keep ukraine in the headlines but also, I think more broadly, not only to, for, for people to continue supporting Ukraine, but also don't count them out yet. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. 
We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.